Hey, before we start the show, I'd like to give a shout out to a very special sponsor of the Code Story podcast, and that's Dev Mountain. Dev Mountain is one of the highest rated coding schools in the country, employing experts who are passionate about sharing their craft and empowering the next wave of programmers. Through their bootcamp, they accelerate education by focusing on modern skills to align their students with the needs of the tech industry. They offer a variety of courses from web development to UX design to iOS development, and their hands-on approach enables students to launch their careers or build their startups and ultimately to achieve their goals. I can personally vouch for the quality of developers they produce, having hired six graduates from their Dallas campus. Not only does Dev Mountain teach the practical skills needed to build software, they give their students a foundation to amplify the necessary creative thinking, problem solving, and project focused skills required for tech professionals today. You can find out more information about their programs and how to sign up at devmountain.com. That's D E V Mountain. But my initial thought was, heck no, another ride-hailing company, what's the point? Does Uber and Lyft have it all wrapped up or, you know, is there any space out there? You know, when I started hearing some of these horror stories, you know, I, I, I at first was like, okay, that's a one-off, it's a one-off. And then I came home to my wife and I was like, you know, this is, this is crazy, you know, you and I take Uber and Lyft all the time. And she goes, stop. We take Uber and Lyft all the time. I don't take it by myself. If, if you'll permit me, I'd love to join your team and let's, let's make this happen. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Laphart, and today, how Jonathan Campos saw the opportunity to create and build the next big thing in ride sharing. All this and more on Code Story. After getting his master's, Jonathan Campos found himself working with clients, listening to their pain points, and creating software to meet those needs. He worked his way through a handful of startups and agencies before landing at Bottle Rocket as the chief architect growing their web and back-end practice. Not too long after, a former boss reached out about an opportunity to up-level the ride-sharing experience, focusing on simple billing, safety, consistency, and control over the experience. This opportunity was to become the CTO of Alto. Tell me um, your career path up to this point. Started in high school doing some development. In college, I started as a CS major at UTD. And I actually found CS to be quite boring. Just wasn't scratching the itch that I was hoping for. So I switched over to actually arts and humanities and was one of the uh, very first people in a program that eventually became the ATEC program at UT Dallas. And so with that, it was kind of mixing like the art and the communication side of development with the technology. So shot through school, again, just couldn't get my hands off of, of working hard. So uh, that ended up only lasting about three years. And then I lost a bet to my older sister and I 
wasn't able to find a job right out of college, so I went and got my master's. When I came back to, to Dallas and I got my first job in a small marketing company. And as we were working with these clients and trying to help them on their marketing plans, you know, the, the developer in, in me just kind of kept listening to their problems. And eventually, you know, I convinced my boss and, you know, we started actually building yeah, at the time, what I would consider semi-basic software for these for these clients, a lot of what's out there right now on the cloud wasn't out there back in you know 2005, 2006. What a lot of these customers needed was not a new marketing plan, but you know a centralized way to deal with like contacts and you know basic CRM programs you know that are more customized to their to their business. And so I started getting right back in development and. At the time, I was doing a lot of like PHP, MySQL, and you know, very early Flash 2. From there, I got stolen away to a startup in the Frisco area called Nextplore, where the idea was that we were going to start building basically what what would be equivalent to like a Google apps, like you know, Google Docs, Google Sheets, the you know, the whole nine yards, along with a, a search engine. But uh, the company just never materialized the way we wanted. I then moved to Stream Energy, where I was really focused on front-end development with that team and doing a lot with like Flash and Flex. Then quickly got stolen away from there and became a consultant. And I was a consultant for a good you know, 10, 12 years uh, with a company called Percosti here in Dallas. And you know, my focus you know, started off on the front-end technology. So again, Flash, Flex, HTML. Um, and then the last few years, I worked at Bottle Rocket Studios, who, if you're from Dallas, you know they're a, a you know, premier mobile development shop. And there I was the chief architect and really kind of helping lead and, and grow some of the technology. They're really amazing when it comes to the mobile technology, but they're still growing up when it comes to web and backend. Uh, so I was there for about a year and a half, you know, helping them with that. And then, you know, lo and behold, you know, you keep good relationships with your old bosses. And my old boss, through a friend of a friend, started talking to uh, Will Coleman and Alex from Alto. And they said, hey, you, if you need a CTO, there's only one person you need to talk to. So uh, they gave me a call and that led to Alto. Tell me about that process, that phone call. How did that go when they when they reached out to you? When they first called me and they said, hey, we've got this ride hailing company in Dallas that we're kicking off. We're still extremely early on. You know, you'd basically be like employee number three or four. Are you interested? And I took this call initially because, you know, a previous boss made the connection. So a friend of a friend. But my initial thought was, heck no. Another ride hailing company, you know, Uber and Lyft, there's rush. You, you know, there's, there's, what's the point? But then I started reaching out to some friends and, you know, Will sat me down and Alex and we kind of went through all that they were doing and the experience was amazing what they're trying to put together. And, you know, the, the plans that they had, it was like, everything was buttoned up and like, again, some of the smartest people you, you've seen and some of the best laid plans. And it was just like, okay, Obviously, you're onto something. You're intelligent. You know this isn't crazy. I've got to go find out. Is, is you know do my own you know small market research. So I reach out to some people that I trust. Uh, one of my buddies at TechCrunch. I reached out to him and I said, Hey, there's this ride hailing company in Dallas. Like, okay, tell me honestly. Like, does Uber and Lyft have it all wrapped up, or you know, is there any space out there? He immediately was like, No. 
Uber and Lyft do not have this wrapped up. Like ride hailing is actually still like on the grow and changing. They have zero loyalty. They've got some very serious problems. You know, it's really, if you can get that right edge of, of a loyal customer, that's not gonna go jump between apps, you know, on a drop of a hat, you actually may have a winning combination there of, of how to grow. And I was like, okay, so there may be a market, there may be ability not to get crushed. This is interesting. And one, one other thing that, you know, is really big for Alto is safety. And specifically, you know, they really like focusing on, on women passengers and improving the experience because, you know, as two guys on this call, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's, it's hard to sympathize properly with the experience that women have when it comes to, you know, Uber and Lyft and other traditional TNCs. You know, when I started hearing some of these horror stories, you know, I, I, I at first was like, okay, you know, that's a one-off, it's a one-off. And then I came home to my wife and I was like, this is, you know, this is, this is crazy. You know, I'm hearing all these stories, like, there's no way this is true. You know, you and I take Uber and Lyft all the time. And she goes, stop, no, no, no. We take Uber and Lyft all the time. I don't take it by myself. And then she says, I don't even like it when you get out of the car too fast. If I'm still in the car, because I'm afraid they're going to take off with me still in the car. You know, something as simple as that, you're like, whoa, that's, I didn't realize it's like a day-to-day, -day, you know, concern. And, you know, as I keep talking, it was just like, and you know, to her and to others, it was just, wow, there, there, it's, it, there's a very real visceral, like, fear. Okay, there's definitely something there. And at that point, you know, I, I called Will up and I was like, we, you've got something. And, you know, if, if you'll permit me, I'd love to join you, your team, and let's, let's make this happen. And that was it. We, we got moving from there. You did your research. You, you saw the problem and the need. You, you, you even felt it um, in, in certain, certain close, intimate circles with your wife, you know, speaking to you that way. And so you jumped on board, employee number three or four, like you mentioned. Um, when you started in, was there any technology pre-built or did you jump in ground zero and, and start creating something? So there was some pre-built. We've been working with, uh, or at the time they'd been working with a company called Frog Design in, in, in based in Austin. Frog was helping them get the MVP out the door. We had a, you know, they had a, a very short timeline they had made some technology decisions already. Um, and, you know, all these decisions were around how to get an MVP out the door and we could, you know, start be able to actually get real feedback from customers. There, you know, I came in and of course, the first thing I did is did a technology audit, figure out what decisions have been made, uh, you know, have my own personal you know, stamp of approval or on, on some of these things and start determining where are we gonna go? And, you know, I, once we kicked off and got going, it was immediately apparent that our growth trajectory was going to outgrow the MVP within months. So we went from something that, you know, you, you hope an MVP lasts a year, you know, year and a half, maybe two years. Yeah. And at this point it was within months, we have to, this all has to switch out. It is, it is not at the scale necessary for the growth that we're seeing. So, um, you know, immediately I ramped up a team and we, we got to developing. The, the, you know, the trade-off obviously in the beginning is you accepted a, 
uh, probably a quicker solution that, that ended up not being suited for your growth trajectory. What was the tech used for the MVP? And then what tech did you start to change over to, to support your growth? These decisions that were made, I'm, I'm not faulting anyone if you know they've made decisions similar. Um, you know, I, I can tell you just through my years of technology that you know, I get it. People make decisions in a vac, you know, in in the moment that they're in. Not everything's perfect, and so if you've, you know, anyone listening, if you've made some of these decisions, like that, very well, well may be perfect for your use case. But for us and the growth that was coming, it just wasn't going to work. So, uh, what they set up is they put together a Node.js server that was running on AWS. It was one big monolithic application. Uh, running with GraphQL uh, and Prisma to handle, you know, real-time communications with uh, various applications and uh, and the database. And you know, it makes it nice. You know, the and if you know GraphQL, you know that it's, it's nice because you can be a little bit more flexible about your service calls as you're setting things up. If you know Prisma, it's kind of one of those like out of the box, you know, able to to do a lot for you and do a lot of heavy lifting of the communications back and forth, it, it doesn't scale well. And there are bugs. There's even if you look in the official documentation, there's places where they say do not use you know these products in production. You know there's there's serious problems. Yeah, I mean one of them, you know, was a, a really horrible memory leak that we we're dealing with for months. And in their, you know, in their GitHub repo where you know you actually see them going through and talking about it like, yeah, we're focusing on this, and, but it's a problem, you know, don't use this in production. And, you know, so of course, that's not something you know immediately, that's something you start learning once you start getting load in the system and you start seeing like, wow, this is this is an issue. We worked with the MVP and we're still working with it and, and, and transitioning off of the MVP, but where we're going is uh, totally built on Kubernetes with Istio and Knative and a lot of you know other cool buzzwords that you've heard I'm sure a million times already. Uh, we are kind of switching over so that we have we're actually going to you know use Google servers and use Firebase for a lot of those real-time uh, database communications. And you know this is really going to help because you know switching from a monolithic application structure to a microservices application structure it just makes us a lot more nimble and able to make changes on the fly where. You know, in, rather than having to wait till after midnight, one, two o'clock in the morning when customers are, are off the platform, we can, you know, start doing middle of the day switch, you know, hot switches because we're now changing small incremental pieces as opposed to the entire application. How did you go about the process of building or how do you go about the process of building your product roadmap? So we talked about the, you know, the internals, the tech part of it, but how do you go about prioritizing not only internal changes, but the, the product changes themselves. So this is actually a place that I'm very proud. Of. I feel that our executive team does a good job. So as a startup and any you know new company, heck probably any company period, there are a million things that you can work on. And almost any one of them gives you some level of positive return. So with that, we've got this laundry list that we can work on for the next few years of all this wonderful things but how do you start prioritizing and determining which one is going to give you the biggest bang for your buck and which one is going to 
be right for the our current timeline. Uh, obviously, we can't be building something that only will be good a year from now. We have to also build stuff that's going to be helpful, you know, the next week. Uh, what we do is we actually sit down with, you know, some of the our highest priority items. We listen to what our customers are saying and what their pain points are. We listen to what our drivers are saying because our drivers are, you know, some of our most important customers, and we hear what their pain points are. And honestly, we put them up on a board and. You know, once we start narrowing it down to, let's say, the top, you know, even 30, narrow it down on a two by two board that we make a matrix of impact to our customers and and the level of effort it would take to actually uh, complete these tasks. So when you actually look at those two scales, you're able to determine, okay, this one is low impact, but really hard to work on. Okay, maybe we don't focus on that. This one over here, though, this other task is really high impact, but very low effort. Well, that sounds like an easy win to me. So once we start laying things out, we start determining which one's more important, which ones are easier, which ones are harder. You see it up on the board and you're really able to start seeing clustering of priorities. And then with that, you're able to just slice off certain areas and say, okay, this is going to be highest priority and the stuff we're going to focus on is next quarter versus these other pieces, which may be uh, disregard or push back until their priority changes. So it sounds really mathematical and clean, and it makes a lot of sense to do it that way. Do you ever find yourself or the team taking those high impact, high magnitude of work items and breaking them down into short-term and long-term pieces? Yes, um, definitely, especially when they're, you know, some of these pieces are, are very big. And so we start determining, you know, how can we focus on certain pieces or, or, you know, what is the MVP version of this story versus, you know, the entire piece? Because if we always do, you know, the, the biggest possible work item, then, you know, we'll never get anything out to our customers. And a lot of times, you know, even getting that you know, 20% of the feature out will you know impact and improve 80% of your customers' you know, usage. So, you know, start really breaking down individual pieces and figure out what's the MVP of this feature, or do we have to have the whole thing to make the, the full impact? Let's take a, a step back and probably into something that you're continuously doing as the CTO. But tell me how how did you build your team? How did you select the winning horses to to really drive the development of what you're doing at Alto. This first team is just an amazing group of people. So immediately, just because of teams I've worked on before, I knew roughly what the structure needed to be. You know, I needed you know, two or three back-end folks, two or three front-end folks, a you know someone that would be a good project manager, someone that would be a good you know system reliability engineer someone that would be a QA and you know then someone that would you know focus on on the product itself uh, both in in terms of the design and the user experience which are very different things you kind of put all those together and you you know that's that's the list of people you need however that's more requirements than I actually had open slots for so a few people we had to double up on but uh, I immediately started reaching out to some people that I've worked with previously so two or three of them were were, were people that I worked with before and I just I knew that their temperament and their drive to learn and grow and, and try new things was was exactly what we were looking for and then others I 
just started you know, fishing out there. So I knew from the beginning that I wanted to make a team that was representative of our customer base. So being that at least half of our customers are women and half of them are men, I really want to focus on you know, I can very proudly say we have a you know, very diverse uh, team that includes both women coders and, and, and men coders. Um, and then with that, just you know, making sure to keep a good culture that, that will keep growing this team because once I started getting the first two or three, those people would start uh, evangelizing for us and talking to other people they knew. And it became more of a word of mouth campaign than anything else. So. In the end, I was able to bring the team up to about 12 individuals. And again, it's a great team. We focus on you know, getting work product out, not how often your butt is sitting in a chair. We really focus on trying to do something new and learn and grow, while also you know, making sure to get a good high quality product out. Are you, is, the, is your structure of the team pretty flat or do you have managers underneath you that are managing groups of folks or leads? How, how did you go about structuring that? Uh, it is fairly flat. I do try not to have too many levels. However, I do know that you know we've got different experience levels within our team. So right now, the way I set it up is the fact there'd be two juniors for every one senior developer. Uh, this is really something that's important so that way these junior developers can have someone to mentor them, someone to answer those questions and, and help them grow. If you have all juniors, it's it's really hard because you know, then of course, you know, they're still learning and, and cutting their teeth on problems that a lot of us have solved already. But on the other hand, if you just have all seniors, yeah, that's you know, that's wonderful, but it's a, a high priced team that's you know hard to to keep up with and and then also hard to keep them them encouraged. You know, by having this mix, it made it where you know I was able to go out and find uh, you know, very senior developers that really had that love of coding, that really loved teaching others. And so they, you know, my, my senior developers, they, you know, right from the beginning, they, they said they, they want, you know, a, the ability to teach and to mentor. And so they were able to scratch that itch with us while improving, you know, people that were still just starting out their career in development. Yeah, that was that was kind of my my initial plan. So right there, uh, you know, one senior front end, one senior back end, and then two junior front end, two junior back end. The rest of the team is kind of uh, individual contributors, including you know, project managers, designer, QA, etc. So it sounds like not only is the team culture important across the company. But you've set up your tech team culture for where there are opportunities for mentorship, for growth, for pass down of, of senior knowledge, things like that. Is that right? Before even coming into Alto, I can tell you that, you know, I sat down with Will and I said, okay, well, if I come in, there's certain requirements I have. You know, as a developer, I know that what, what us developers want is we want something that challenges us. We want to be able to grow we don't want to get stagnant. And so I told them like, you know, we need to have, you know, I can't come in unless we have a guarantee of a certain amount of budget specifically for, you know, learning and growth and con conferences. And, and Will was extremely positive with that. He said, I love it. You know, I love the idea of, of people, you know, getting better and, and wanting to stay and being challenged. So, 
let's do it. So that was that was an easy decision to make. Um, and so with that, you know, we do a lot of internal training. Uh, we're not great at doing it every week just because, you know, we, we forget from week one week to the other, but we're usually pretty good about doing lunch and learns. We you know, have, have the team do, you know, pair programming. We have a lot of code reviews. We have certain levels of expectations that we expect, but all of this is meant to be a growing and learning environment. I can tell you that, you know, this last week or two, we started getting some new areas of code and it was great to watch some of my front end developers come up and they said, hey, there's this online course, cost this much, I wanna do it. And I didn't even blink an eye, here you go, here's the credit card, let's make this happen. And within a day they came back and they're like, I've learned so much, I'm ready to go. Some of these things don't have to be huge, long, multi-month training, it could be just focused on one little piece, but just that kind of environment helps people know that the company, the best for them, and so that in turn they want the best for the company. Tell me about a mistake that you made throughout your process at Alto, either a leadership mistake or a tech mistake. You know, what did you do about it? One mistake that I've made is um, there. We were initially trying to really rush to get uh, one position, one key position filled. Because of that, we we kind of scrimped on some of the you know, best laid plans that we'd put out. We, you know, we had said that we always want, you know, every one of our candidates to go through, you know, these stages. And we, we, we kind of scrimped on that just because, you know, we felt this was the right person and we really wanted this position filled. And so we kind of rushed. And when they came in, it, it was pretty much, it was pretty immediate that we knew that we'd made the, the wrong choice with, with this candidate and that, it just it wasn't going to work. Really tried hard, and for a good couple months, we we really tried working with the candidate and you know making sure that you know to see if we could recover this. And it was just it was a, a mismatch in skill sets and expectations. And it just it, it stinks when that happens. You you never like being in the situation. You never like seeing anyone else in the situation. Uh, it was it was it was really painful and disheartening for the executive team that you know we made this decision and and things were going this way so you know sadly it, it was best that we you know we sat down we had many conversations and we just, just we just chose to you know to part ways this just it reminded us whenever this was all over that the old saying is, is very true you know to you know hire slow and you know be very sure of, of, of what you're getting yourself into fire fast if you if you know things aren't going to work out just be very open honest and, and communicate that issue whenever your team did decide to part ways with the candidate what was the impact on your team after the fact was it positive negative neutral what are your thoughts there this was the first person from my team that we had to let go and so i wanted to make sure that it went as positively as possible. Um, it's always, you know, I, I feel that it's kind of scary when someone gets let go within a group, especially, you know, a, a group of, you know, only 12 people. But these people knew this person and, you know, they, they, they knew, you know, who they were. They knew their family to some degree. You want to make sure that people know that 
This was not a decision made lightly. A person did not walk in one day and we just decide, hey, that's it, it's over. And so I made sure to sit everyone down and let them know that, you know, these are the steps that we took as a company. These are the many communication points that we had. You know, this was not a decision that was made lightly. And I, I wanted everyone to know that, you know, if it comes down to, you know, we will work as hard for you and make sure that, you know, we can, you know, try to salvage, you know, the situation, adjust job descriptions as necessary, just do whatever we can to, you know, make this work because, you know, we want a good working relationship. You know, in the end, I think it ended up really positive. It, it let people know, you know, that we do care and just sometimes we have to make those hard decisions. I've been in that seat and it's, it's not an easy one. The team does benefit from it in, in many ways. Can you speak to some of the things that y'all are doing in in the cars themselves uh, about the experience and some of the IoT stuff that y'all have uh, introduced? We do have monitors in the car for all of our drivers. Uh, these include a, a camera that you know is, is plain to see. You know, with this, we we track every one of our drivers. We ensure that you know that if there's any kind of harsh braking events, if there's any kind of distracted driving, that's something that we actually respond to immediately. All of our drivers know this. Uh, we actually train uh, around this, uh, you know, this technology, and we ensure that, you know, that, that we make that we ensure that using technology that we can give customers the best experience. We actually go onto the the second half where, uh, for our customers, we actually make it where they can they can actually control the car in ways that you know other other competitor can't do. Because we own the car and we can actually put specific technology in the car, uh, we're able to do things like give customers you know, control of you know, the radio in a much more seamless fashion than, than possible. And there are a few other ride hailing companies out there that allow you to, to request to have certain radio stations playing or something to that effect. But ultimately what it does is it comes down to the driver reading a request on a screen and choosing to actually you know, execute that that request or not. Or even worse, you're in the car, the, the driver is focused on driving you safely to your next destination, and you're asking them, hey, can you change your radio station? Can you plug in my phone? Can you set the Bluetooth up? Can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do that? And it's a horrible experience, as opposed for us, where because we own the cars and because, you know, we've got this tight integration of technology, you can actually, you know, control the radio, control the volume, control the, the lighting and all sorts of stuff within the car directly from your phone. So, you know, it, and it's, it sounds like a small change compared to requesting it from the driver until you're in the car. You're sitting there and you decide, you know what, I'm gonna change this music. No talking necessary, no explanation, no back and forth. You just make the change magically the, the radio station changes over and there's something just very satisfying to that it just becomes a, a very magical positive moment and experience where you realize this could be better than what's out there okay jonathan um name name an architect or cto or tech person that you look up to tell me why or if it's a non-tech person who do you look up to a lot of the people i look up to i, I can you know, I, I try not to you know, do, you know, be very grandiose about people that, you know, you see out there that are more public figures because 
you, know, you don't know how they actually are and they work. And, and But I've been very fortunate over the years to work closely with you know, some really amazing, intelligent folks. You know, within the community, I can tell you that a gentleman in Chicago named Mike Labriola that you know, runs Digital Primates, which he is an amazing architect and one of the smartest people I've ever met. Uh, within Dallas, there's uh, Carter Bradford, who again is just one of the smart, smartest cloud architects and, and now uh, runs Precocity here in Dallas. Uh, I was very fortunate uh, for a while to work, work with Roy Fleming, actually the person that penned his dissertation on you know, RESTful services. Hearing him talk about the open source community and, and how Apache came together and you know his his goals around technology, it's amazing. You know, you bring in a, a a brain like that into Adobe, which you know Adobe is a huge technology company. I mean, within hours, he's making fundamental shifts to their technology, you know, platform. Uh, and it's just amazing to see some of these people. And you know, one the the command they have over the technology and to the understanding of how to you know work with with people and with organizations it's just it's awe-inspiring you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours excursions and more in one place there are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from so you can find something for everyone and viator offers free cancellation and 24 7 customer support for worry-free travel download the viator app now and use code viator 10 for 10 percent off your first booking in the app find travel experiences for you do more with viator if you could go back to the beginning of alto uh, alto specifically uh, what would you do differently or, or what, what would you, you know, would there be another approach you might take to a certain area? Yeah. So if I were to go back and do it differently, I definitely would uh, come on board a little bit earlier and make sure that we built everything using microservices right from the get go. It adds a little bit more complexity, but man, it gives you a lot of flexibility. You know, I could be switching out piece by piece as opposed to having to, to plan and build. That would be the biggest change I would make if I could go back and wave that magic wand. If you could give some advice to someone who is getting started a few years back from where you are now, what sort of advice would you give them? So this is, uh, this is advice I, I've, I've given in the past and I believe it with every bit of my being. So I'm going to say it over and over and over again until everyone hears it. I tell every new developer that's coming in to create a project that you're passionate about and to see it through from beginning to end. A lot of developers are out there and they may have done like a course at Dev Mountain. They may have just been sitting in their, their room reading books and, and plugging away at their own little personal uh, projects and decide that development is the way to go. But I can, t I can tell you, launch something. It doesn't have to be big, preferably keep it small because it's, it's gonna get bigger than you believe. But launch something, really put it out there, really work on it and love it and, and own it because you learn so many different parts and pieces as you're going through. You, you, there's no single piece that, that you get lost in. When you, when you start working at these big companies, you just focus on your one little area of code. You don't realize how everything works together. 
when you're new in development, you don't have that that resume that says, you know, you've been working on, you know, X technology for five years or 10 years. And so it's really hard to prove you're, you've got those skill sets. So the best thing you can do for yourself is to just build it, build it on your own, be able to come into an interview and say, yes, you're right. I don't have 10 years of experience I can point to, but look at this, open it up for them. It doesn't have to be amazing. It doesn't have to be beautiful. You know, whatever your skill sets are, lean towards that. If it's, you know, highly scalable, great. If it has this, you know, beautiful way of dealing with data, if it's just beautiful on its own and maybe you're more of a designer, just build something and get it out there. Work on every little piece so that way you can talk about it and you will be so much further than you believe. There's a lot of people out there that don't sit and really learn and spend those 10,000 hours on something and because of that, you will be surprised how much further you are along than any of your peers because you've spent that time and really you know, loved and grew your own piece of, of you know, development art. That is solid advice. Solid advice. Well, Jonathan, I really appreciate you being on the Code Story podcast. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is a production of TouchTap LLC and is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart, co-produced and edited by George Macharco. Special thanks to Deanna Chapman and Stephanie Campisi for their promotional support. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Breaker, or the podcasting app of your choice. Make sure to check us out at codestory.co or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big.